We're in this series called Inspired, all right? And you, you are aware of that, but in case we have a guest with us today, we're going through the Bible from beginning to end, and we've now reached the minor prophets. And in order for us to be done by the month of May, when our college students go back, we're going to have to take just one of the minor prophets, all right? And so I've picked my favorite this morning, and probably one of the most recognizable of all the minor prophets, and that is the prophet Jonah. And there is a lot that we can learn from Jonah's turf and surf experience uh, this morning. There are skeptics who, uh, who really struggle with the whole story of Jonah. I mean, okay, a guy's gulped down, spit out by a great fish, and then lived to tell about it to the residents of Nineveh. For some folks, that's just a little bit too much to swallow. A little girl had come home from Sunday school. Her neighbor was out in the yard, and he saw her, and he said, well, welcome home. He didn't go to church, and and he said, what did you study this morning in Sunday school? And she said, we studied about the story of Jonah. Do you really believe that, young lady? Oh, I, I, yes, I do. Well, I think it's just a big made-up story, he said. Well, she replied, when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah if it's true. He chuckled and said, what if Jonah isn't even heaven? And she said, then you can ask him. It was logical to her, all right? Do I believe the story is true? I, I certainly do. After all, if the human mind can devise a submarine where people can survive underwater for days and weeks, even months on end, then it is no stretch for the mind of God to sustain a man for three days in the belly of a great fish. But that's not why I believe. I believe the story because Jesus believed the story. Jesus believed that Jonah was a historic person and an accurate narrative of historical truth. When during his own earthly ministry, he was confronted by some skeptics of his ministry, and they asked for a sign, Jesus said there would not be a sign given except for the sign of Jonah. And this is what he said in Matthew chapter 12. He answered, a wicked, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. You remember the story, don't you? You see, here's the problem. If, if Jesus, if Jonah isn't true and Jesus said it was, then that makes Jesus deceitful. If Jesus is deceitful, he is disqualified from being our Savior. If he's disqualified from being our Savior, you and I might as well pack up and go home. It's a whole house of cards to say, well, if Jesus can believe in Jonah, I don't want to. No, if Jesus proclaimed it truth and then he wasn't honest with us. We have a huge problem on our hands. So I believe in the story. I believe it's accurate. I can't explain it, but then there are, that, that's the very nature of a miracle. God creates things that defy the very laws of nature that he put into place. You remember the story, how it goes, don't you? 
God tells Jonah to go preach to the wicked city of Nineveh, but he doesn't go. He buys a ticket to Tarshish and heads in the opposite direction. To get Jonah's attention, God sends a storm. The frightened and reluctant sailors finally toss Jonah overboard since he confessed he was running away from God. Probably no prophet ever accomplished more with a lousy attitude than Jonah did. God spared an entire city because of his preaching, and Jonah wasn't happy about it. You'd think he'd be thrilled. I mean, that, after all, that's the purpose of preaching and teaching God's Word is to draw a response, and Jonah did it with, the, with a flair that caused people to respond from the king on down to the least. But he wasn't happy. So let's take a look at the characters of the story and see what we can learn from each of them. Let's take a look, first of all, at the reluctant, those who resisted the will of God. Jonah was reluctant to go to Nineveh. That's how the story begins. And really, who could blame him for being reluctant to go there? Nineveh was the capital city of the ancient kingdom of Assyria, a huge but horrible metropolis. The inner wall of the city was approximately 12 kilometers in circumference. Up to 175,000 people could easily have lived inside the walls. Others suggest that the city had expanded beyond the walls, covering as far as 30 miles along the banks of the Tigris River. Jonah, the, the, the book, makes reference to 120 who do not know their right hand from their left hand. Uh, one interpretation of that is that these were children and infants too young to understand. So the, the massive nature of this populace was, was huge if it included 120,000 infants and small children. Much of the territory of ancient Nineveh is incorporated within the suburbs of the modern-day city of Mosul, Iraq. The prophet Nahum called it a bloody city. The Assyrians were so nasty, they were some of the very first people to employ crucifixion and impaling as a form of capital punishment. No wonder God was so prepared to bring judgment on that city. I understand why Jonah was reluctant to go. By the way, sometimes when we get to the prophets, we think all of the prophets dealt with the Jewish people. Here's a case where, where Jonah deals specifically with a pagan people, and, and it's true. God cares and loves all people. Here, here's the second reluctant group, and that is the sailors. They were reluctant to throw Jonah overboard, and who could blame them? I mean, they were probably superstitious to begin with, and, and at best they may have been slightly religious, but it would have been pagan religion, not, not God's religion. Either way, they knew they were going to be sending a man to his certain death, and so in their ethics, they did everything they could to spare Jonah without throwing him over the side, even though Jonah had already told them that this was punishment from God on what he had done. In desperation, they finally tossed him overboard, and the sea grew calm. The third one was, I suspect the great fish was reluctant to swallow Jonah, and who could blame him? I think Jonah's attitude at this point would have made him pretty bitter too. Jonah's disregard for God's command likely gave the fish indigestion because the word in the text actually is the word vomit, and that's what he did to Jonah on the beach. Human nature is reluctant to change even when it comes to following God. Don't run from God. Reluctant as you may be, you cannot hide from God. He will find you. Jonah learned that truth the hard way. So let's profit from his bad example before we make the same mistakes. Some things you just can't get away from in life, and God's 
will and purpose for your life is one of them that if you turn your back on, it will catch up with you. And it will likely plague you for the rest of your life. So just go where God sends you. Um, I think the safest place in the world is where God wants you to be. Even in the midst of hardship, trial, tough times, and everything else, the safest place you can be is where God wants you to be. Because like I say, some things you just can't get away from. Wilmer McLean was a small farmer in the Shenandoah Valley in 1861. On July 18th of that year, two very powerful armies met on his farm. It was the Army of the Potomac, the Union Army, and the Army of the Confederacy, uh, one under General McDowell, the Union Army, and the Confederate Army under General Beauregard. Up to that point in time, it was the bloodiest battle on American soil. This was the Battle of Bull Run, uh, or Manassas, depending on whether you're from the north or the south. McLean was not exactly sure why the fighting was taking place. He wasn't exactly sure what, what the cause of the war was, but he was sure he didn't want it in his front yard, and that's exactly where it was happening. And so when the battle was finally over, Wilmer McLean decided he was going to move his family as far away from the war as he possibly could. So he sold his farm, and he left the area and went to a small, obscure place in Virginia, a little bit more western part of Virginia, to a small, sleepy area called Appomattox Courthouse, Virginia. And if you know anything about Civil War history, you know that the uh, final surrender was signed in the parlor of Wilmer McLean's house in Appomattox Courthouse, Virginia. The war began in his front yard, and it ended in his parlor on April the 9th, 1865. For all of his efforts, he simply couldn't get away from the Civil War. Some things in life you just simply cannot escape. God's call on your life is one of those things. What's going on in your life that keeps you running from God, that keeps you going in the opposite direction? Remember, no matter where you go, He'll find you. You cannot hide from Him. Don't be reluctant to follow His call. Let's also take a look at the transformed here in this passage, those who humbled themselves before God. Now, the crew on the, on the ship was transformed when they got rid of Jonah. Uh, we have no reason to believe that the captain and the crew were believers, but they demonstrated more faith than Jonah did. Transformation cannot happen until we eliminate our destructive behaviors and habits. When they threw Jonah overboard and the sea grew calm, they worshiped God. Unlike the crew, many of our storms, however, are self-inflicted. Don't flirt with temptation and sin. It will sabotage your life. More people watch pornography per week. According to a study uh, by 60 Minutes, more people watch pornography per week than all the professional sports combined. Some of our storms are self-inflicted. The prophet was transformed when he changed his attitude. Have you ever noticed the same, that, that, that some people aren't happy unless they complain? Uh, I think Jonah had a touch of that. In the comic strip, Garfield, uh, Garfield noticed that everything about the day seemed great. You know, the, 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 the orange cat. It was sunny, the wind wasn't blowing, and the temperature was perfect. When John, his owner, spotted Garfield looking glum, he says, Why the long face, Garfield? And the grumpy cat replied, there is nothing to complain about today. Now, don't you know people like that? 
that when everything is great, they're not happy because there's nothing to complain about. A turning point for Jonah comes in chapter 2, verse 7. He's in the belly of the fish, and this is what he said. He prays. When I lost all hope, I turned my thoughts once more to the Lord, and my earnest prayer went out to you in your holy temple. Sometimes we have reached our lowest point before we recognize that our attitudes are like an anchor to a drowning man. Don't wait until you make everyone around you sick to their stomachs before you change your attitude. Jonah was transformed, at least momentarily. And then thirdly, the, the, the city itself was transformed when the people repented. Amazingly, the wicked inhabitants of the city of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. Now, this was what Jonah did not expect. Now, I'm sure the story of this man's three days' journey in the stomach of the fish made an impact. Uh, if, the, if the fish was a normal fish, there would have been stomach acid. Uh, his skin would have been blotchy. Uh, there would have been a, a, a whole host of stories already. Don't you know that the, that the sailors from that ship probably turned around, went back to port, reported everything that had happened, and here comes Jonah now as if a man back from the dead preaching the gospel. The, the word Nineveh is a Hebrew transliteration of the Assyrian word Nineveh, which is the name for their fish god. Now, imagine that. If you're, one of your principal gods or goddesses of the city of Nineveh is a fish god, then here comes this guy who'd been spit out by a fish preaching about God and a call to repentance. That was probably one of those key factors in making the Ninevites listen carefully. And from the king on down, they repented. God will use whatever means he can to convince us to make a break with sin. Bob Russell said, when a man goes fishing, that's not big news. But when a fish goes manning, that is a big story. And so when Jonah walked into Nineveh, the news spread more quickly than his preaching. What will God have to do to get your attention? I, I doubt it will be a big fish, but... What will he have to use to get your attention to be transformed by his power? Is anything worth losing your soul? Then let's take a look at the resentful. He who rebelled at the plan of God himself. The resentful one is Jonah through the whole story. Jonah preached the good news to the people of Nineveh, but inwardly was hoping for a bad result. He was longing to see the tears of suffering, not the tears of godly sorrow and repentance. And when the people of Nineveh changed their ways, Jonah was resentful, and he was resentful to God. As Jonah pouted, we saw in the, in the video, a vine grew up that sheltered him from the heat, and then when the vine died, God sent a worm to, to eat the vine, Jonah became even angrier. He became even more resentful and then followed God's condemnation. God said, Jonah, you're more concerned about a plant than a, people full, than a city full of people. A plant that has no soul as opposed to a whole city, a whole nation who has an eternal soul to be saved. Jonah was experiencing congestive heart failure. He was retaining a poisonous attitude and it was choking out his compassion. He was in the right place, Nineveh. He was doing the right thing, preaching, but he was hoping for the wrong response. He wanted to see him destroyed, not delivered. It's true. I don't always understand the ways of God, but then I don't have to. God doesn't require my understanding or my approval, just my 
faithfulness. And I fear that I'm a lot more like Jonah than I want to admit. I want God to work like I think he should work. Don't, don't you? Isn't that the way you pray? And when he doesn't, I'm bothered. Sometimes maybe I'm even resentful. Well, what is it about a finite mind that thinks he knows better than the infinite? And why does one who can only see this moment thinks he knows better than the one who can see into forever? My role and your role is the same as Jonah's, obedience to God's plan. Now, a lot of people resent the whole concept of, of obedience. Um, we, we, that's just one of those words we, we, we're not real fond of, and, and perhaps it's because we don't understand it. David Fleming writes about the common misunderstandings or distortions of obedience. He suggests that there are three lousy outlooks on obedience, and, and, and probably all of us have this to some degree because we really don't understand obedience to God in its heart. Uh, sometimes we look at obedience as a mere transaction between you and God. In other words, this is just a cold business transaction. God has something you want, God ha- or you have something God wants, and, and, and you make the exchange. That's obedience. That, that's, a, that's a poor look at obedience. Uh, secondly, he says, obedience is merely compliance on your part. This is that testy, distorted parental view. God rolls his eyes and says, will you please do what I ask you to do? And you roll your eyes back and say, okay, I'll do it. But there is a reluctance to it. And we look at that and say, well, that's obedience. No, that, that, that's not obedience. Obedience, he says, thirdly, is primarily about rule-keeping. In other words, God is a rule-making God, and so we have to determine what rules God made and follow them, period, whether we like them or not. That is not a picture of obedience either. All of those are misunderstandings, distortions of the truth. What then is obedience? Here it is. Obedience is a profound willingness to surrender to God's will and God's plan because you love him. Let me give that to you again. Obedience is a profound willingness to surrender to God's will and God's plan because you love him. Remember on the night before he went to the cross, Jesus said, If you love me, you will obey what I command. How do we demonstrate our love for God? Obedience. Don't misunderstand. It is an expression of love. And I think Jonah missed out on the love part. Uh, Don't make the same mistake. Because if you obey God out of any other motive, it will often lead to resentment. Neil Jeffrey wrote, he said, the question is usually not what the right thing is, but whether or not we are willing to do the right thing. And why should we love God so much? Because in this story, we are reminded that he loved us first. And even when we act in such an unloving manner, God still reaches out in love. This is more a story about the God who came to this world to save us through his love and through his redemption than anything else. God loved the men on the ship even though they were pagans and clueless about him. God loved Jonah and gave him a second chance to change his attitude and obey. God loved the sinful people of Nineveh even though they were wicked and gave them a second chance to repent and change their ways and avoid his judgment. The story reveals the compassionate love of God who will go to great lengths and go to any depths to reach those who are lost. The real story is not the sailors who were reluctant to toss Jonah overboard. 
The real story is not Jonah, who was reluctant to go to Nineveh. It's about God, who is never reluctant to accept our change of heart. How can you not love a God like that? That's why we celebrate this season of the year. It's the beginning of the greatest story, motivated by the power of divine love, that we find anywhere in history. How can you not love a God who loves us first? Researchers at the University of Tokyo have developed a mirror. This is, this is really interesting. A mirror that causes a person to appear happy even if they're not. Facial features are tracked by a camera in the mirror in real time, and so it adjusts your face and puts a smile on the corners of your mouth. Now, the whole purpose of this is so if you go in and you're shopping and you look at yourself in the mirror and you look pleasant, you're going to love yourself even more. And if you love and like yourself more, you're going to spend more in the store because you've got a happy attitude. Joy does not come from loving yourself more. Joy comes from loving God more. And when you love God, you will also love others. And through that deed, like the Ninevites, they will discover that God loves them too. I don't think I've ever heard Jonah used in reference for preparation of communion. And I think I know why. Because most of the time we would take Jonah and compare him to Jesus, and there's no comparison. I mean, Jonah was resentful. Jesus wasn't. Jonah's, Jonah was reluctant. Jesus wasn't. Jesus was submissive to the will of God. Jonah wasn't. He ran in the opposite direction. Jesus obeyed willingly. Jonah reluctantly. But actually... The picture is pretty good leading up to communion, if you don't make that comparison. If you stop and think about the fact that the only sign that Jesus ever gave of his own sacrifice for us was the fact that Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, and so he would be in the earth three days and three nights before his resurrection. And when you understand that the story is really about God's heart, God's heart is the same as it was in the book of Jonah. He spared a city and forgave their sin. He spared our lives and has forgiven our sin. Isn't that what we celebrate at this table? His forgiveness through the sacrifice of Christ.